You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you all again, and uh, especially enjoyed the music this evening. Uh, There's going to be a special CD of bluegrass unaccompanied psalms coming out soon, and... uh, If you like, it might even be rhythm and blues, because there won't be any other music on it, but just do with it what you will. We're in a postmodern world, and you can just, you know, it'll be true for you, and that'll be fine. Or blue for you, and that'll be fine too. So we're we're turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and uh, picking up from a fortnight ago, and in many ways... um, the news that David brought, which was uh, sad news, um, fits amazingly with the passage that's before us this evening. And uh, perhaps just uh, uh, the, the sobriety of that helps us to um, understand something of what Paul has been doing with uh, a church that he loved dearly, uh, that had treated him sorely, and uh, with whom he has had a most complex relationship and to whom he writes this, the second letter that we have, um, this letter, and uh, it is just full of feeling, full of heart. So this evening I'm going to read from 2 Corinthians 7, from verse 2 to the end of the chapter. And uh, before we do that, let's just ask God's help. Heavenly Father, um, our very reading of your word is uh, so easily clouded with distraction or with preoccupation with other stuff or we just kind of glaze over um, or we bring to your words so many of our own agendas. And Thank you, Lord, that you regard us with great mercy and kindness and with the most profound understanding of our condition, knowing us better than we know ourselves. And so we pray that your spirit would open our eyes to your word, our hearts to receive it, our wills to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul writes uh, in 2 Corinthians 7 to make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have great confidence in you. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged in all our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, 
but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was not on account of the one who did the wrong or of the injured party, that is himself, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, And you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. Amen. And may God bless his word to us. Now this evening we're not going to take it up to like the first half of verse 13. By all this we are encouraged because next time I'm with you uh, in an evening and, and progressing, I just want to spend a little bit more time on Titus's role in the relationship between Paul and the church in Corinth and the, the, the place that Titus had uh, in Paul's ministry. Um, so what we're looking at here is in a sense Paul kind of closing off this first major section. In chapter 8 he's going to turn to the question of uh, finances, and um, uh, that sort of takes us into different territory as Paul um, explores the sort of rekindling of their generosity for the churches. And as is common in uh, many, many uh, letters that have been um, studied uh, from around the time that Paul was writing to the church in Corinth, the closing off of the letter is significant, or the closing off of a section is significant. Uh, Where exactly this begins, as we were saying a couple of weeks ago, is a bit of a debatable point, because Paul just kind of, you know, his his, his sentences and thoughts kind of break over one another like waves breaking on a beach, or he'll he'll have a, a thought and then he'll fly off at a bit of a tangent and come back in again, or he'll stick brackets around something and, and have a little sort of uh, phrase or two and then come back to the main point. Um, so we're picking it up from verse 2 and including that, even though we left off with verse 2 a fortnight ago. Uh, and really it's because there is, as Paul gets to the end of what we call chapter 7, um, and his, he's closing off this whole section about the relationship that they had with him and he with them and how that had been so deeply uh, affected by people who had come into the church in Corinth, perhaps some had been there for a while as well and remembered him when he was there for his 18 months or so. Um, as, he, as he rounds off this section, um, he's doing what many, many people would do when they were, when they were finishing off a letter. Uh, he just sets the right tone to leave it all. Um, 
there's a difference between uh, what some psychologists call our experiencing self and our remembering self. Uh, You can have a great experience of something. It may be um, I don't know, maybe a church service. It may be uh, a, a course at university. It's lovely that Mark and, and Catherine are going to be going up to work in Aberdeen. If things go much further, there'll be only two people actually still working in Aberdeen. Uh, things are getting pretty tight up there. Um, so <laughs> um, uh, you're finishing off your five years of study um, here. And if, if you've had a really good experience and it finishes with a good experience, or even if you've had a fairly mediocre experience, but it finishes well, then your remembering self will look back and will remember the whole thing very fondly. Um, But if you've had even a a most wonderful experience, but it finishes badly, so even if you've had five years of of, uh, unremitting joy uh, as a student, as a medic, uh, it's just been just you know it's been an absolute blast every day, um, but the last few days or weeks go horribly wrong. Um, that's not a word of prophecy for anybody, I'm sure. Um, you will tend to remember the whole thing as being bad experience, and you know that there were lots and lots of good times. But the dominant feeling you will have as your remembering self sort of re-experiences will be a bad thing. That's just the way our, our, our minds work. Um, and so it becomes all the more important as, as that's not, that, doesn't, that hasn't started happening just because some psychologists have kind of worked that out. Um, it's always been the case. So the way that Paul closes off this part of his letter the part where he's been dealing very sensitively with some some deep issues in Corinth and between them and him is crucial. And he does so by setting the right tone, and that's what people were at pains to do in early letters. We might might, um, sympathize with that. We might recognize that when we're sort of finishing something, we want it to finish in a way that just sets the right tone. And so from 2 down to 7... Essentially, that's what he's doing. And in fact, the whole bit is like that, but the, the, the 8 through, through 13, um, he, he focuses a little bit more on, on the sorrow and its fruit, which is the title for this evening's uh, studies, Sorrow's Fruit. So what is the tone that he wants to say? What, what is it that he wants to leave with them as the abiding impression of his feelings towards them and what he wants them to feel towards him? Um, it is essentially that he really, really loves them. Uh, The severe letter that he'd had to write, his first letter, which was pretty strong stuff, some of the stuff that has gone on between them, the things that have been said about Paul, the things that he's had to say to them, the visits, perhaps sort of ten different stages to... Um, his relationship with them over a number of years, even though it has been uh, at times very difficult and painful, it has been love that has been pained, and Paul's love for them has persevered. And so as he pleads in verse 2 for them to make room for us in your hearts, 
And as he lays out the fact that he's never been wanting to harm them, he's never wanted to do the wrong thing by them, we have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have exploited no one. Even then he is sensitive to the fact that all that he has written, even those last few words about we haven't done any wrong, could even then for their hearts think, sound like an accusation. So just with the sensitivity that comes from his fondness for them, his fundamental love for them, his desire to encourage them to godliness, he says, I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts. So uh, you see in verse 3, there we go, from our hearts and we would live or die with you. He's saying, you don't just have such a place in my heart, but the whole of us together, all of us, all my companions. Titus, who's been with you, all the others. We, we sense such a belonging with you. That underneath it all, please, he's saying, please, hear the love, feel the love. I do not say this to condemn you. I've said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. In fact, um, in, in the original, it's the other way around. We would die or live with you. Put the most extreme first. And then you'll certainly do the latter. So we would die or live with you. It's rather like what Ittai the Gittite says about David back in 2 Samuel. It's, about, it's, it's the same kind of thing that Ruth says to Naomi. Where you go, I'll go. It's an expression of just profound loyalty. All the things that have come between us, he said, they're, they're not really separating us. I have great confidence in you. I take great pride in you. I'm greatly encouraged. In all my troubles, my joy knows no bounds. And then he talks about how happy he was when um, he and his companions, having taken the gospel back into Macedonia, uh, longing and looking for Titus to bring them news from Corinth, um, were so encouraged when Titus did come and came with good news that the Corinthian Christians had by and large accepted what Paul had written um, in the severe letter that Titus had taken. And by and large, they had, they had dealt with the person who had been causing uh, the problems and, and addressed the issues and had felt deeply uh, Paul's severity, that same severe mercy that God sometimes shows to us when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest. They were being persecuted and attacked and hounded for preaching the gospel, again in Macedonia. But we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, the persecution. Fears within. Maybe fears for Titus. Maybe fears for how the Corinthians had taken things. Maybe just fears because they were being attacked in Macedonia. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. So the tone he's wanting to set is one of encouragement and of building. He wants them to know that, that he really does love them. And it's just a little sort of um, uh, way the words work, particularly in, that five, in verses 5, 6, and 7, which perhaps give us a, um, a, a picture of, of it all. Um, the word that Paul uses for, for uh, Titus 
by the coming of Titus, verse 6, and not only by his coming, verse 7, is the word parousia, uh, which is the word that usually we, we, we associate with the, with the return of the Lord Jesus. Uh, he's coming again. The, the parousia was more than just somebody arriving. So, you know, when the number 20 bus finally comes, or in actual fact, the number 20 bus is when three of them come at once because you've been there for an hour and a half. Um, it, it, it's, it's not just like, you know, something like, it, it, this is a big event. A parousia is a huge event. It's not just somebody arriving. Right? We all arrived in church. There were no fanfares whenever, whenever any of us arrived in church this evening. Um, there were no great celebrations, no party poppers or anything. We were just coming to church. A parousia is big celebrations, fanfares, trumpets, party poppers, you name it. Because the parousia was uh, what you, how you described the arrival of a really significant person. A king would arrive with a parousia. So it really was a big event. Everybody turned out bunting all over, fantastic time. And Paul uses that word to describe when Titus arrived. Now, you'd be pretty sure in Macedonia that there weren't outward celebrations. What he's describing is what he felt in his own heart. It was, it was, like, it was like the most fantastic thing. When Titus appeared, we were wondering if he was safe, if he'd get here. He got here. It was just like fireworks, brilliant stuff. Not just because he arrived, but because of what he told us about you. And Paul, he, he, he just keeps letting us in to see what his heart is like. And he says, we, we were downcast. The word just means we were really, really low. We were really low. We were just flat They were dark days. And he comforted us. God put strength into us. God lifted us. Stood us back on our feet. God did a little bit of the thing that David did with Solomon. You know, stand up and be a man kind of thing. God stood them up again with the news that Titus brought when he came. as if God himself, verse 6, just picked us up, put new spring into our step, put a smile on our face, put celebration in our hearts. Why? Well, not only did Titus arrive, but as he reported everything that you had given him and everything that you still think about me, then it was just like we were walking on air again. What do we do with that? What do we do with that? Well, for sure we get an insight into Paul, don't we? Uh, For sure we get an insight into uh, Christian leadership that is uh, vulnerable. For sure we see that... um, You can't be involved in the ministry of God's word with people. And you can't have that kind of concern and relationship with people without it costs you. If you want a cost-free Christian life, then 
just sort of stay separate. Just keep yourself to yourself. But as soon as you start ministering into people's lives, not, not necessarily by becoming a full-time minister, but just as soon as you start sowing into other people's lives, as you start giving yourself to people, then it's going to cost. There, there is no ministry in its very broadest sense that is going to leave you immune from pain. Neither, therefore, is there any ministry that is going to be without its joys. But you're going to find yourself in Christian leadership and in Christian ministry, um, just as you give yourself to people, you're going to find yourself no longer on the nice, safe island of a well-managed world. We like the island, do we not? Um, There's something in us which just likes stuff to be known and certain and predictable and, you know, just we know where we are and it's fine. And we like the limits and we like it manageable. And we find that comfortable and we find it psychologically comfortable. But if you're going to serve God by serving other people, which is what ministry is, If you're going to be loved by God and so find yourself overflowing with love and loving other people, then you have to get off the island. And you have to get off the place which is safe and lovely for you. And you have to get into the swamp. You have to get into the world that Paul ministered in, which is a world of uncertainty, a bit chaotic, people take things the wrong way, It's a world of feeling and emotion. It's a world of unpredictability. It's a world of feeling like a failure. It's a world of self-doubt. It's a world where even your self-doubt can turn into God-doubt. It's a swamp. Now the amazing thing is that Paul um, lets all this out. Back in 2000, um, two, the research was published that uh, two guys have been doing in the States, Goffey and Jones. In fact, they're British. Um, but uh, it was published in Harvard Business Review. And Goffey and Jones, for about 18 months or so, had been doing research on leadership uh, in the corporate world, but elsewhere as well, mostly in the corporate world. Except they didn't look at it by you know, looking at, well, what makes great leaders and looking at great leaders of the past and all that kind of thing. They went around asking a really uncomfortable question. And they kept going around saying, why would anyone follow you? <laughs> just scary question. Get a bunch of ministers together and just say, why would anyone follow you? <laughs> and they reported just about on every occasion when they did that, the room just went silent. People started looking at their shoes and it was, you know, that was going to be the end of the conversation. Well, they discovered um, by asking people who follow that the first thing that people recognize in the ones that they follow is what Goffey and Jones called expressing vulnerability. You see, if, if you want a life that is just kind of splendid and heroic, if you've got a view of the Christian life that is heroically immune 
to feeling that is heroically immune to the impact of other people's feelings and conduct behaviors, then whatever else you get into, you will not be getting into Christian service. You won't be leading a Christian's life. If you try and hide your vulnerability, as Paul quite evidently was not trying to do, then you may save yourself a few pains, but you also miss out on not only the depth of fruitfulness, but many, many joys. Because as Paul says here, his joy now knows no bounds, verse 4. So really what I, I, I would want us to, to draw out from 2 through 7 is simply the reality of what it means to be a giver of God's love. It will cost you. It will also bless you, but it will cost you. Now, Paul not only wants to set the right tone as he sort of draws this section to a close by encouraging them and, and, and pointing out to them what a great blessing they are to him and such huge encouragement now and a source of great joy. Um, but then he goes on in 8 through 13 to, to highlight why he's really feeling like this. And it's not primarily because of what they think of him. It's because of what the sorrow that he caused them has done in their relationship with God. Uh, which is why Paul emerges from this passage as uh, a true servant of God rather than a servant of himself. Because the thing that causes him such joy, the thing that really, really counts for Paul is that the tough love that he has shown them, the tough empathy that he has shown them, the severity of kindness that he's shown them, has produced its fruit. The sorrow that he has caused them, that he did not want to cause them, that he took no pleasure in causing them, has done its work. Uh, however, Bitter, the bud may have been, the flower has been sweet. So 8 through 13, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do, not, I do not really, looking back, regret it, though I did regret it even when I wrote it and I knew it was going to hurt you and I, I knew it would, but it would only be for a short while. You just see how he's trying to negotiate his way through there. Even if I cause you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm, I am happy. Not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. 
So, my friends, what would you like God to say to you? When you open his word every day, I hope you do. When you come to church and you want somebody to preach the God's word to you, what do you want God to say to you? Uh, There are times in our lives when we desperately need God to give us some encouragement. There are times when we desperately need God to give us a word of guidance. But the whole thing about God is that he's God. And he'll say what he says. We live in a world where um, we are so prone, without realizing it, uh, to become simply consumers. So God is the great provider. We are the consumers. We come to him as consumers do these days on our terms. Customer is king. Uh, We come to him with an expectation that if we give him some time, he will give us what we want. We never put it like that, but simply the consumerism of our age gets in there. It kind of seeps in, and we forget that we're actually coming to God. Whom to love is also to fear. And God will say whatever he wants. It will always be true. It will always be like a rock to build your life on. But we cannot come to God always expecting that his word to us will be exciting, which is the great thing that everything has to be nowadays. It's very difficult to hear anybody telling you about some upcoming event that's that's happening or some course or whatever without it being promised to be exciting. Um as if that was our greatest need. We cannot always um, guarantee that it's going to be a nice thing to hear. Especially if we've bought into the way the world thinks now, which is to equate loving somebody with affirming everything they do. So if you love somebody, you basically will just support them whatever they want to do, which is just balmy, isn't it? Because if you love somebody, you might sometimes pull them back from sticking their hand in the fire. There's a 15-year-old boy in Aberdeen in the middle of his Nat Fives uh, who I would go under a bus for in a moment. Does Matthew think that I approve of everything he does? No. So just as Paul has written to these Corinthians and spoken to them with tough love, so there are times when God's love for us will give us a word that is uncomfortable, where it is given to us in order to discomfort us. It is given to us perhaps to rebuke. It is given to us because the surgeon has to make a wound if he's going to heal. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Well, there's no greater friend for you or me than God. And so in that kind of, with that kind of heart and mind, with that kind of 
internal logic to the Christian life that comes from God himself and how he deals with us. Paul has, he's, he's regretted the fact that it's going to hurt. But he's ministered in the way that he has anyway because he knew where it would lead. Your sorrow led you to repentance. Going back to what David was saying earlier, that has to always to be the prayer. That always has to be the intention behind anything that we might put under the umbrella term of church discipline. Your sorrow led you to repentance. Why? Because Paul was particularly adept? No. Because God was in it. You became sorrowful as God intended. And so were not harmed in any way by us. See what he's saying? See, I wrote the severe letter. I've given you rows. I've done all this. Were God not in it, I could have completely ruined things for you. I could have hurt you in such a way that you would never have recovered. But God was in it. It was all coming from him. Oh, sure, I was ministering, but actually it was God who was ministering. My letter hurt you, but God was causing you the sorrow that would lead you back to himself. And that's what the Spirit will always do. People can condemn you, but the Spirit will always put his finger on something specific and lead you back to God with it. And so this was godly sorrow. And by that term, godly sorrow, at the beginning of verse 10 that we've got in the NIV, we should really not read that as, I was sorrowing in a godly way. And you see the godliness of my sorrow. What he's saying is this was from God. It's God's sorrow. God is the origin. And it brought repentance. You turned around. You had the metanoia, the change of heart, the change of mind. You turned right around in your tracks and came back to him. That godly sorrow brings, repentant, uh, brings repentance that leads to salvation. Now, he's not saying that you know, they weren't saved and now they're saved in the sense that we might normally think that you know, they, they weren't Christians and now they are kind of thing. Although who knows what depths of work were done in some people's lives in the church in Corinth. But what he's talking about is you have been delivered. This is salvation that is deliverance. You've been delivered from a way of life that was taking you further and further away from the gospel. Further and further from God. You've been delivered from something that was poisoning the fellowship. You've been delivered from something that, that was just eating away at you like a cancer. So that repentance, as you've come back to him, has produced in you, or led you to this salvation. So verse 10, godly sorrow brings repentance. It leads you to deliverance. And it doesn't leave that awful sting in you that's going to go septic. It leaves no regret. So you find yourself saying like David in Psalm 119, it was good for me to have been afflicted. It was good for me to have been afflicted. doesn't excuse anybody. But I see what God was doing. 
As we find ourselves echo again, echoing again in our minds what Joseph said to his brothers in Genesis chapter 50. You meant it for harm. God meant it for good. So the great healer of their souls has brought them back to a lively life. Whereas worldly sorrow simply brings death, no hope, no future, just kills you. And then he wants them to see what he sees. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness. So now you're really serious about the Christian life again. I don't know if you've experienced this, and there have been times uh, for me when I have, that God has put his finger on something, somebody has said something, it's, it's hurt, but it's been true. And it's made you come back to God and repent. And you, suddenly it's like you're serious about God again. I don't mean you're sort of down in the mouth. I mean you're just really earnest about God again. And you realize that for ages in the Christian life, you've basically just been playing at it or going through the motions or drifting away. And the one thing you were not serious about was the place of God in your life. You may have got more serious about a relationship that you're in. And that girl or that boy has become the thing you are most earnest about and you're just drifting away from God. Or it may have been that dream that you were chasing. May have been those things that you really wanted to acquire and they were just leading your heart away and somebody said something to you and it just stopped you in your tracks. You came back to God, you're under conviction of sin and you repented because the Spirit leads you to repentance and you found a new earnestness in your heart about God again. And you realized just how missing he was in all your thoughts. You never realized it. A new earnestness. What eagerness to clear yourselves. That is to, to lead a righteous life again. What indignation at the wrong that was being perpetrated. What alarm at the ease with which we can go off the rails. What longing to be godly. What concern. What readiness to see justice done. Because when you drift away from God, it's amazing what kind of rubbish you'll put up with. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. All charges dropped. All charges dropped. All complaints. File closed. Shred it. You're innocent. So even though I wrote to you, it was not on account of the one who did the wrong or the injured party. That really wasn't the focus. The person among you who had slandered me, or or even me. The real purpose was so that, verse 12, before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. And so what Paul has written in 11 particularly it's basically him holding up a mirror saying, see, see how you are now. See for yourselves what kind of people you are that God has made you. By all this, we are encouraged, and Paul is writing, 
so that they might be encouraged. So if we know that Christian ministry is going to be costly, if we know that we're going to love, then we're also going to hurt. So from 8 through 13, we see that God in his astonishing wisdom may cause us to experience confrontation and conflict and rebuke and discomfort and sorrow. Why? So that we might love him. So that sorrow might produce its fruit. So that our lives might produce fruit to his glory. So that we might be delivered from that which would ruin us, but which we find the most natural thing in the world and might even love. God wounds to heal. We've heard it once already in prayer. God discomforts us so that we might know his true comfort. God might bring us sorrow because it's the only path to real joy. So if he does, receive it. If at some point in the near future or maybe in the distant future, some Christian gives you a straight word of rebuke. Not cruelly. Not in some sanctimonious way. Not in some kind of legalistic, self-righteous way, and that can happen. But if some Christian who is a friend tells you straight to your face that you're going off the rails, welcome it. Welcome it as from God. And let godly sorrow bear its fruit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And for sure, Lord, um, we just wouldn't come up with a word like this. And so we take it as from you, for it is in your word. And it's there in black and white, so we receive it from you. And we ask, Lord, that uh, you would help us to store this up in our hearts. And we pray that your spirit will bring this back to us. We pray that this evening's word will not be lost amidst the normal pleasantries of life. We pray, Lord, that we might know you to be faithful and true, to be loving beyond indulgence, to be truly loving. Pray, Father, that this might happen in us so that Jesus might be glorified 
so that we might rejoice in him and walk closely with you and grow in our likeness to him. In whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.